So uh, great to see you and thanks for coming out. A um, couple of things just before we get going. As I mentioned and as I think as I look around the room, I think you've all been in formation before so you know that we record and podcast so if you say anything that you later regret into the microphone during any discussion, um, you can come and see me about getting yourself eliminated. Um, <laughs> and uh, that, have, that has happened. Um, we have uh, embarked upon a series this year. Who has been already so far to one of the two sessions that we've had? Uh, okay, quite a few of you. Some of you haven't. Um, broadly speaking, uh, we're going through this theme called So Now What? Which um, is really asking the question, what, how do we start to build uh, spiritual practices into our life that reform our way of engaging with God and with spirituality and with our faith? Um, given the fact that um, for many of us, there has been a process of sifting through some of the things that we believe, sometimes pulling things apart and trying to put them back together again. And um, even if you haven't been coming to formation over the last couple of years, that's uh, often still part of the journey of uh, growing in our faith journey. And, um, and sometimes what happens for us is that when things do change, you then go to reach for some of the ways you are used to engaging with things and find that they no longer work for you or you don't quite know what to do with them. Or for some of you, perhaps you just never have had ways that you're comfortable with. So what we're trying to do this year is we're, we're talking for a little while about the Bible uh, and then we're going to do a bit of talking about prayer after that. Um, some of these ideas that have been shaped in all sorts of different ways for different ones of us. Uh, and see if we can find some useful ways of talking about them and thinking about them. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started off this series then by talking about the Bible as, as a text uh, that's really a, a wisdom tradition for us, that when we think about what happens when we engage in the Bible is that we are entering into a conversation, uh, a sacred story, if you like, of people who are figuring out what it means to believe in God and what that means for them and the way they see one another uh, over a long period of time. And that we enter into that conversation to engage in it. There's this very modern, modern Western notion, I guess, of, of trying to approach the text to get to the answers to all of your questions. What we find, it's not very well suited for that a lot of the time. <laughs> um, because it's stories and poetry and, you know, it's, it's song and it's protest, it's... It's not a list of answers to questions. So how do we enter into that uh, and participate in it and wrestle with it? So uh, that's kind of where we started. Uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about some of the mythological elements to the text and what we do with those. So uh, we looked at um, some things like uh, stories where naked people are wandering in a garden with a talking snake. Um, or... Uh, all the animals in the world fit on one boat. Um, that these stories that, um, if we read them probably anywhere except in the Bible, you'd automatically be like, oh, this is kind of a mythological telling of, of some kind. Um, but, and again, in, in the modern Western church in particular, I think there's, a, there's been this way of reading them that's tried to impose some kind of scientific analysis on top of them. Rather than recognizing them as these very ancient ways of communicating meaning and truth, uh, and ideas about God and about humanity. Uh, so we tried to wrestle a little bit with that a couple of weeks ago, at least dip our toe in the water 
there. Um, we ask questions like, what purpose is there in telling this story? What does the story tell us about how they understood God and humanity? Is this similar or different to the nations around them? Because as we discussed last time, even stories like the creation story or the flood story, they're very similar stories in terms of topics being told in surrounding nations at that time. But what are the differences? What are the distinctions? What, how do you see their particular beliefs in God reshaping those stories and telling them in different ways? Uh, and where does the story fit into the evolving idea in Scripture of who God is and what God is like? Those are some of the questions we discussed a couple of weeks ago, which I find to be useful questions when approaching um, many of the texts actually in Scripture, not just those kind of slightly more curious ones with talking animals. All right, uh, so we've got um, a few more sessions wrestling with the Bible. Tonight we're going to talk about reading Scripture uh, with a more mystical eye. Uh, and then next time we're going to talk about violence in the Bible. Yeah, and what do we do with... Uh, there's a lot of violence in the Bible, actually. Uh, if you ever try those read through the Bible in a year plans, you, you start bumping into a lot of blood very early on. Uh, and... <laughs> There's a lot of killing. There are just some, it's just a violent world that these stories first emerge in. A lot of tribal violence, a lot of uh, divine violence, a lot of divinely sanctioned tribal violence. Um, so what do we do with that when that's part of the sacred story of our text? How do we wrestle with some of those things? And I think that's quite a big question sometimes for people when they start to engage in the Bible. So we're going to talk about how we might engage with some of those. We're going to do that next time. And that'll be fun. Fun in a, you know, serious kind of, we're talking about violence kind of way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there are, some, there are some great stories. If you, There are tent pegs going into people's skulls. There are, there are knives disappearing into fat people's bellies that disappear because they're so fat. That the knife disappears all the way. You know. there there's, <laughs> there's one story where the neighbouring village really want to marry some of the um, Israelite ladies. And the guys, uh, the Israelite men get very upset at this. So they say, look, we'll let you take our ladies if you all get circumcised. And these guys are obviously desperate for ladies, so they all circumcise themselves. <laughs> and while they're all recovering, the Israelite men just go in and kill them all. Which is an incredible battle strategy, I suppose. <laughs> But no, that's right. What a way to go. It's just, um, yeah. Thus says the word of the Lord. So what do we do with that when that's in something that we call God's word, you know? Well, how, do we, how do we wrestle with some of those stories? Yeah. So that's next time. Uh, and then we're going to spend, kind of related to that, we're going to talk about how Jesus and the story of Jesus reshapes the way we engage in the whole of Scripture uh, and then towards the end of this series, this particular part of the series, then talk about how Scripture is involved in our own transformation. So, which is really what this whole time is about in some kind of way. You all right? Okay. So, so tonight, Greg's going to come and help me uh, in a minute. So that'll be nice. You'll uh, know Greg. Um, we're going to be talking about reading Scripture in the, in the mystical tradition. And... In some ways, I find this a very helpful way to start thinking about engaging in, in Scripture. Uh, I think when I was, well, for a lot of kind of modern Western Christianity, there's, 
that there's been a kind of couple of choices when it comes to reading the Bible. One is the super literal kind of reading of the text, um, which tends to treat it as this very black and white um, dualistic approach where you're reading it and there's one clear meaning and it's clear and obvious to everybody. Um, and, and often that kind of approach is used to sort of batter people into submission, you know. Uh, if you've got a question, I'll quote five verses at you, uh, and that should settle the matter. And if you've still got questions, well, you've got doubt, and that's a problem, go and get some prayer. Um, that's one way of thinking about how the Bible functions. And, but that was often sort of preferable to the other option for many people, which was this kind of dry, distant, academic, intellectual approach to the Bible, which talked about all of this stuff like, you know, all of these articles and books and texts and journals and scholars. And, and, but that seemed sort of almost dry and too analytical for many people out over here. Uh, but often those were the two choices for many people in terms of how do you engage in Scripture. And I think um, trying to think about a more mystical approach to the text can be a way of um, meeting somewhere else, uh, finding connection with God and each other in our reading of Scripture. So that's what we're going to try and talk about tonight. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to ask Greg, uh, Greg Burson, uh, a resident mystic, <laughs> uh, to come. <laughs> tortured mystic? <laughs> All mystics are tortured. Um, I'm going to ask Greg a few questions and we're going to have a bit of a conversation. We're going to have to switch our microphone between one another, and um, and then we'll have a bit of time for some some Q and A if we want some chat, and then depending on how we're going for time, we can have a little bit of a discussion around one or two things as well. So does that sound all right? Great, thanks, Greg. Um, I'll start with the obvious question, which is probably where we should start, which is what do we mean when we talk about Christian mysticism? Just a bit of heavy breathing passing by. Kia ora koutou Thanks for having me uh, be a part of tonight. Um, my fascination with, the mis- with mysticism or Christian mysticism um, um, centres around the idea of my love for the prophets and how they represent for us or represented for the people of God a new way of seeing God. So the big idea behind mysticism is this, this thought of um, unitive consciousness with the divine. This, how, does our, how is our life absorbed into the divine and how do we understand the work of divinity within us? Um, this idea of going back to Genesis, we're made in the, we are image bearers, we're made in the likeness of God. And so the mystics studied that idea of how our lives developed a, develop a more non-dual way of seeing the world. In fact, the idea of, uh, and if some, some of you might have seen it, in, you know, if you've been um, hijacked by the, the teaching of Illuminati or Hinduism, the third eye concept. Um, so what they would say is that we have two eyes that represent the dualism of our humanity, of seeing the either or. And the third eye concept, which is some, Richard Rohr would say, it wasn't just a part of the 
um, other culture, which is a part of Christian tradition, um, uh, talk about how the third eye is another way of seeing, another way of understanding consciousness and understanding God, which is non-dual, all right? Uh, so it doesn't see as God is posited up there uh, as some super being uh, in the sky and we're down here. It sort of posits the idea that we are absorbed into the idea of, of the divine and that the mystic's job is to help us to see that, to unpack it, to unravel it. Um, and the two ways that they did it were through contemplation and kenosis. Uh, contemplation, of course, the idea goes behind deep thinking, uh, prayer, closeness to God and kenosis or self-emptying. Um, not, not just the denial of stuff like, you know, no chocolate or no Facebook, um, but actually an unpacking um, or deconstructing our way of thinking that is dualistic, where God is out there, we're here, we're separate from God. So kenosis isn't just, just not smoking or not drinking or not doing that. It's actually unpacking a new way of thinking about who God is. I thought that was you then. You thought that was me. Well, you, you're gonna, you're gonna, this meeting was going to change tack very quickly if that was me. Uh, deliverance session. Um, there is, wow, there's a lot in there. Um, no, 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 that, don't be sorry. Uh, there's so much, I think, going on in that answer um, that in many respects, because we live in a Western civilization that is shaped by really a Greek philosophical um, seedbed, if you like. That, that's, the, that's the philosophical grounds of Western society. And, and Greek philosophy is so inherently dualistic that we are, whether we kind of realise it or not, fundamentally just trained from the moment we kind of enter the world to think in these very binary dualistic ways. And so um, it can be, I think, confronting sometimes to begin to think about God in, in a different kind of conversation and recognise actually that Christianity itself was not a Western tradition um, to begin with, but is, you know... Uh, coming from a different place. Uh, and this idea of the God up there is so prevalent in our psyche that it, even having done theology for years and continually unpacking that idea of God, it's amazing how still the instinctive conception of God still come, often just ends up being Basically Zeus, you know, which is what Michelangelo paints on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, his painting, he, he bases on a statue of Zeus out the back, you know. Um, this image of the old guy up there. Um, and so to be confronted or to be challenged about our notion of God, I think, is, is um, much needed. Um, so talking about God. What does it mean? Because often I think this kind of language, you've even kind of mentioned a unitive consciousness, which is this idea of you know, being absorbed into and finding God in. Um, what does it mean to think about an evolution of God consciousness in the biblical text? 
Um, it's a really simple question, right? I think one of the things you've got to give yourself permission to, to walk through is the idea that in first stage naivety, everything is generally dualistic. You know, we, we start as kids with boundaries and we, it takes a while for us to grow into the different stages of naivety where the boundaries break down and we realise, oh, the world is not linear. It's not all black and white. It's not in and out. It's not God and us. It's, it moves from God and us to God in us. And all of the Eastern tradition, traditions come from that idea. And one of the big ideas I forgot to mention is about kenosis or the self-emptying of God was how God helped us to understand who God is in human form. Jesus self or God's self empties in the person of God to remind us that God is not that kind of God and incarnates as a human to re the idea of who God is for us, which is quite unique, isn't it? You know, I mean, then, then you get stuck and you go, well, then if it's just God and me, it's just, I am God. But then you look around, you realise there's other humans and there's other stuff going on. So God just happens to be bigger or more than, or extends beyond you. Um, so I wrote this down. Uh, for me, I, I talk about the various iterations of God for me. In, my, in, in early stages when I started, it was very literal. Uh, God sat on the throne. I wasn't quite sure what God was like. Maybe an, an anthropomorphized version like Zeus or an old white guy because uh, that's what all the painting seems to suggest. So, you know, you, you, you often start there because all the language of the text seems to suggest it. You know, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, all that kind of literal teaching um, is not bad. It's how we came up with the idea of God as a super being. Um, but as you journey through the text, you start seeing God as, a, as hyper being, as spirit, as energy, as life, as love. The metaphors that represent God is not just some kind of physical reality. God is metaphor. God is spirit. Um, and then you begin to find, uh, as you move through the various iterations of God, God is the ground of all being, uh, that um, uh, everything speaks, everything um, mimics and imitates and reflects the goodness of God, right? Um, and you see that in the poets when they write things like, you know, I look to the mountains, where does my help come from, you know? It comes from the Lord. And you see them using creation as a beautiful idea of, of God as the ground of all being. You know, if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. So, huh? Rocks don't worship God. Yeah, they do, actually. They've always been worshipping God because everything God makes is immediately endowed with this, the, the idea of worship. And then you... You move into the different iterations and God is experience. So for me, the idea of God, the evolution of, of my God consciousness has that there is still a part of me that defaults to that first stage novity of God as a super being, you know, as a, a really old white guy or maybe of someone with a darker complexion. And then you, you move into the different ideas of who God is and you've got to, the mystics play around the edges of that because for, for a lot of us, God is actually an experience more than some detached being. It's an experience of the divine, an experience of intimacy, an experience, right? So when you talk about uh, uh, God told me, 
It's, it's pure subjective experience, isn't it? It's not like a voice came out of the sky. And so when you read in the Scriptures and the Lord spoke to Moses, our immediate first stage naivety goes, super being out loud speaks, right? That's our first, that's how we think. Until you realise, oh, that's not how God speaks to me. So why would the Bible say it that way? To help you realise that God is actually not so much speaking as a super being, but speaking as a, as a, as a hyper or a moment of experience in that situation. But we always start at super being, and I think we end up around the ground of all being and hyper being and experience, and, and this is a big answer. And what do you think, Michael? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I think that's been, in, in many respects, my kind of journey as well. And a part of that journey you see unfold in the biblical narrative along the way. And we, we talked, um, I think, in the first session for this series about how our assumptions so often when we go to read the Bible is that whenever, wherever God pops up, everybody's got exactly the same idea in their head of what they mean. <laughs> um, but actually what we see over the course of the story is that their ideas of God are are actually changing. Yeah. Uh, and for Christians, then Jesus is this profound reconfiguring of what God is like, mm. of what we mean when we even say God and where we find God. And so, and, and, and it's not just, you know, because I think there's something unique obviously going on in the Jesus story for Christians that we circle around, but the way Jesus teaches us, um, even in a bunch of the stories that he, that he talks about, it's about the fact that um, you're, you are actually to, you are finding God in the faces of of another, yeah. in particular kinds of way. Whether it's in the least of these, you know, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me, is actually uh, that God is not um, just sitting up. You know, what's what's the old text with the the uh, the, the earth is His footstool, which heaven is, heaven is the throne and earth is the footstool. It was obviously wonderful poetic metaphorical language, but but often. Um, if you if you really take it too literally, yeah, then you've got a, a sort of a giant God being out there uh, who can put his feet up on the earth um, if he likes, and it's a him, of course. Uh, I think, I mean, the thing I love about that idea is that Isaiah, he, he, and again, a mystic, uh, um, a prophet, and he, if you think of the language of furniture, throne, footstool. Where is the place, because he said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where is the place you will build for me? So he's explaining a room, a chair, a footstool, a space, and they're all in the same locale, all right? But we often read it as, well, you know, the, the, the footstool's way up, there's chairs way up there and the footstool's down here, and of course God's got long legs. Uh, and where is the place you will build for me? But it's interesting, he says, where is the place you will build for me? H how do we build with a dualistic mindset if heaven is there and we're here? So he's, he's actually suggesting to you that the life that you're building is enthroning God in, in the idea that your life lives in two places all of the time, heaven and earth collaborating together to build a, a habitation in you. Yeah, good. That was good. 
Um, I mean, the, the the interesting thing when you, I think when you start to think along these lines is that as you begin to read, say the prophets, uh, and also Jesus, and then even Paul. I say even Paul because sometimes he comes across as a bit odd, but um, but socially awkward, doesn't he? If you read Paul, I feel like he would be. Um, but you also start to see the language of experience um, embedded in, you know, these prophets who are called. Often, you know, Isaiah has this very profound mystical experience when he has his call. Uh, a number of the prophets talk about their call into that kind of vocation uh, in that kind of way. Uh, Paul himself has this mystical experience um, on the road to Damascus where he encounters somehow the risen Christ uh, through a light and a voice that no one else can see. And, you know, that it's, um, it's very curious language and very curious story. Um, sounds a bit unusual. I mean, well, that's, why the, that's why the mystics believe in the ecstasies of the human experience. So an absorption into the divine is an ecstatic experience that Paul has. Hence why prophecy was always considered an ecstatic absorption into the divine, where your life becomes one, a, a unique moment of oneness, and you become, in a sense, like God to the people around you. Well, the voice of God. That's why when the ancients said a prophet showed up, they didn't say a person showed up. They said God shows up because that person has been absorbed into the divine. They are a, a, a the presence of God amongst you. All right, and so it's a it's a strange way of thinking, but because we've been we've created this weird kind of separation. Um, Paul's experience of marriage is beautiful because he talks, he elaborates on it about how you should be faithful. And yet then he has this amazing moment of frustration and he says, in my opinion, you probably shouldn't get married. So you see this beautiful, uh, his idea of God rooted in his experience. He's, he elaborates beautifully over here about the wonders of marriage and then over here he goes, don't bother. And so his experience of God in marriage, comes through as a theological point of reference. All right. No, no, no. Um, okay, let's ask this question then. How does this way of thinking impact your approach to the Bible when you read a passage of Scripture? Um, I think, again, in, my, in first stage naivety, I was taught to read the Bible to develop uh, correct doctrine, um, because there were certain verses that said that. And, and, and the Bible was a road code for living. So, you know, it was like the, the book that gave you the dictates, the commands, the way that you do life. And, and so it was a very literal reading. The mystics don't tend to read the Bible for doctrine's sake or literally. They tend to read it for meaning's sake. Um, so they read it a lot more laterally. So they employ ideas like allegory, um, idiom, uh, symbolism. Uh, they look for the thing behind the thing, the idea behind it, the intent rather than just the content that jumps out and says, oh, what was happening here? It's like you can't read the Noah story uh, um, and you can't read it literally because some kid's going to say, why were the other animals bad? Why did only two of 
do the giraffes make it? So you're going to have to explain to them the intent, the thing behind the thing. And so the mystics take you behind the scenes, pull you behind the scenes and say, what's the meaning in the story rather than the literal reading of it that gives you your proof text to guard your doctrinal position? All right? It's, it's like that with all moralities. We tend to base our morality on the proof texts that we extract from the Bible rather than looking at it as a whole and finding the meaning behind it. That's why all Christians should watch Handmaid's Tale um, because it's a reflection of Genesis, the book of Genesis, where they had womb slaves and they treated with, uh, women with disrespect. And you see the evolution of the trajectory of the scripture, you see the redemptive hermeneutic coming through, advancing through the text and pulling you along with it and saying, oh, ancient primitive consciousness treated women like womb slaves. Uh, then they wouldn't let them talk. Then they wouldn't educate them. And then you see the trajectory of the Bible moving slowly towards uh, Jesus who says, look, you blockheads, you idiots. Uh, God has always been for, for women. You have just used God's name to justify your primitive consciousness around the systems that you develop. There's a richer meaning behind why God made um, uh, humans male and female. And so the mystics pull you behind the scenes and challenge you to address your, your hierarchical vertical God bring God down to here and go, well, what does God really think? And so for me, it changes the idea of how I move from the literal to the lateral. I, I, have try, I try to avoid proof texting to justify my position or react to what somebody else is saying. Like someone says something, you go, well, the Bible says. So I try to resist proof texting because it's a sign of immature first stage naivety. Uh, and go, well, uh, what, what's behind why they're saying it? What's the meaning? What are they feeling? What's the feeling behind the feeling? So, uh, If you don't know what um, the idea of proof texting is, if that's not a familiar term to you, I guess it's, it's the idea that you can come up with a verse that you can then use as the evidence for a, a particular doctrine. So let's say we believe in a certain thing, or here's the text that proves that that's, that that's the thing we should believe. Uh, I, I still, and I've, talked about um, Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my house before. Um, but it was always interesting as a kid watching Jehovah's Witnesses and my mum do battle, you know. And it was like, it was the proof text battle because they were both turning their pages, trying to turn the pages faster than the other person so they could get to their proof text before the other one could, you know. Having this debate over particular um, ways of ways of seeing things. And it was like, well, I see your John 1-1 one, one, and I raised you a better, you know, a better translation of John 1-1 one, one, and... Uh, <laughs> It, it was. I take your Quran and I raise you a Bible. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and so and so using it as this kind of weapon, or just simply as this evidence-based kind of approach. Um, and, and you know, a lot of sort of, especially within Christian fundamentalism, if you read a lot of statements of faith, they'll state a doctrine, and then they'll list the texts, uh, and they're all out of context. None of them are a place within the narrative. They're just texts plucked out that kind of prove your point. Uh, this is clearly what we should believe. And so um, maybe it's a way often we start engaging with Scripture, but there are some different ways of entering into the conversation that in the longer term are often more fruitful and helpful for us. Um, if we think about Scripture as a tradition of people's experience of God, um, that's kind of culturally, culturally located, 
uh, and you're talking about kind of primitive and ancient consciousness. So if we think about it as, as the story of people's experience of the divine and whatever we mean by that, rather than God's dictated text where God has sort of, you know, got a telephone line to, to the authors who then listen and write down everything that God says. Um, how does this impact our reading? So if we think about this as this, this journey of people's experience of God rather than the sort of the heaven-sent book that floats down and lands in our laps. Um, the thing that's helped me with this is I've, I, used, I started reading the Bible as a static and rigid black and white textbook. Um, and it took me a while to realise that, that the prophets never saw it as a, 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 a rigid declaration of facts. Like this is exactly how it happened and this is exactly what's going to, um, the way it's going to be. And they would say this, the mystics would say, the scriptures are still being written. They're being written in your life. So they're still being written. Now, it, you will come up against a problem with that idea when you, you read the end of the book of Revelation. Where it says, if anyone adds to this text, may the curses come down upon them and blah, blah, blah. And so everybody's just too afraid to think that the Bible's still being written or the text is still being uh, unpacked and, uh, and lived through your life. Um, and, and yet uh, one of the, the Eastern Orthodox Church never wanted the book of Revelation in the Bible. It, only came, it, was, it was one of the last books to be given permission to be a part of our text because they saw so many problems with it. It was the Westerners that, that fought for its inclusion because of some of the violence and the problems with the way in which the world was shifting and cultures no longer saw God uh, in that kind of way, like a, a, a heavenly battle going on between you know, the powers of darkness and the powers of God. Um, everyone's like, well, it's that seems like a weird idea. If God is all powerful, then what's the problem? You know. Uh, so, in saying all of that, the idea of how I read it, I go, what? How does this enculturate in my life today? Because I don't, I don't live in a culture, I live in a mindset where uh, a lot of the ways in which the Bible was written are. are valuable to me anymore. That's why when you see Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, He doesn't actually quote from some books. He purposely doesn't quote from a lot of what the book of Joshua and some of Numbers because the violent nature of how they used God's name to justify the killing of other humans, the, the ethnic cleansing and the brutality of killing children and babies and pregnant women was no longer in the evolutionary trajectory of Jesus' thinking. And He's coming along saying, look, it's there, it's a historical count, um, it, it, it may have happened that way, but I'm here to, 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 to teach you uh, or, or write a new chapter in your life that represents the, this, the, the evolution of the Bible. Um, so this, the text is sacred to me. Um, it's inspired, but it needs to, if it doesn't keep being, if it doesn't keep rewriting your life or reworking in you, then it will become an irrelevant textbook that sits on the shelf that you just refer to when you need to fight somebody. It'll, it'll, become a, it'll become a sword. So you'll notice that um, a lot of the prophets treated the Bible as food. Um, and they would say things like, eat this book. It, it was food. 
um, rather than a sword. You know, in fact, most of us had those Bible covers back in the 70s and 80s. And we were talking about this before, uh, songs, the call to war, spiritual warfare songs where we get real, you know, uh, you know, and we have swords and we hold our Bible up as a sword and it's for, but swords kill people. And, and you know, and instead of a, a meal that should never be eaten alone. Um, and so the idea of food and so I look at it a little bit differently now. Um, I'm not trying to figure out how it, changes my life, I'm trying to figure out how it invites me in to how this would work now, you know? Um, I don't know if that answers the question. Neither, but it was great. Um, I think it does in some respect. As you were talking, I was thinking about um, the fact that, like colloquially, um, for many people, the Bible is called the Word of God, but nowhere in the Bible does it refer to itself as the Word of God. Um, whenever it uses the phrase the word of God, it's talking about what God has said in a particular context. So the word of the Lord came to, um, which is quite a, it's it's a funny thing because if you assume that word of God means Bible, then whenever you read word of God in the Bible, you think it's talking about itself. Does that make sense? As if people would have had a Bible, Bible, exactly, Um, which they didn't have. Everyone wasn't sitting around with Bibles. Um, there were there, you know. By the time you get to Jesus' time, there are a collection of of scrolls, but there were. It wasn't kind of a, they weren't sitting there with a packaged leather bound Old Testament. That's for sure. Um, and people certainly weren't carrying Bibles around in their homes, or, or you know, there was no New Testament. Um, most of the Christians in the first century, at best, have probably got a collection of some of the Old Testament texts, um, and maybe one letter Paul wrote them, or somebody else wrote them. That's that's their kind of scripture, um, or if you like, that's their that's their guiding text. Um, John's insight in his gospel is that the word of God is Jesus. So, if you really want to get a sense of what does God want to say, well, God, that's that's found in, in that's the Jesus story, and so everything else is really a, in some ways a witness to that experience. Um, now I can feel it sometimes if you've if you've definitely grown up immersed in a tradition which is like the Bible is the Word of God. Um, I don't. My aim is not to disrupt you from that feeling. It can feel a bit strange to. I'm not saying it's not sacred or inspired, or that we don't find God present there. It's just that phrase itself has been appropriated and used about it in a certain kind of way. That's yeah. And, and other words have been used like I, I don't know if you've grown up with this, but I was taught, and I didn't grow up with it, but I didn't learn it till my twenties, that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Um, and my, in, in, at first, it seemed to be really helpful, uh, and then I began to struggle because it, it tended to try and make the Bible say something it might not be saying, um, and it kind of. It didn't leave room for the complexity of ambiguity and contradiction, and um, which you would expect with humans uh, trying to write down what they feel God has spoken to them. And that lack of certainty uh, messed me up until I realised that it actually, when I let those words go, and I'm okay if people have them. When I let them go, I found more certainty and more security and more assurance in the Scriptures because it didn't have to say something 
um, uh, to make me feel better about myself. It, it gave me the freedom to be a mystic and to let mystery be one of the guiding principles behind why I should read it. And that's one, he said to me, why read the Bible? And I said, well, because of the, because mystery keeps you interested in the possibility of more. Right? It keeps you hunting. It keeps you on a treasure hunt. It keeps you going. It's like, oh, this, there could be something more here. Just keep reading. There could be, uh, and, and story does that. That's why Jesus spoke in parables because he said, he said, these are mysterious stories to keep you questioning, to keep you asking, what, why, did you, what, why did you say it that way? They don't understand it. We still don't understand it, but that's the beauty about a good story. It, the, it keeps mystery alive inside of your soul. Right, like Frosty was telling a story today, and it was just the way he coined it was so funny. I'd never seen it that funny before, and it's like the retelling of a story and the mystery that hides in it helps us to want to read it more. And I think the reason why it's read less than ever before is because it's no longer a mystery book or a mystery novel. It's become a literal uh, code book. Uh, that you only need uh, when you need to sort your stuff out. Um, <laughs> there's, what was I going to say? Something profound, I'm sure. Something amazing, but it's flown out of my head. Um, I, I was thinking, <laughs> there used to be this, the Bible code. Do you remember the Bible code? Oh, you've got a Bible code? Did anyone have the Bible code when they that's this is this is for old people really. But uh, well, you, you know, you calculate all the numbers and then you add up, oh this this letter was used this many times and, and it's given this number in the Hebrew and then if you times that by that and by the number of times that it appears in chapter seven and you calculate it all and then it'll predict all of the leaders of the world. It's amazing. Um, which was which is a way to try and get mystery, but in the but via the wrong <laughs> means, via this very kind of supernaturalist, super super being kind of um, way of seeing, seeing the text. Um, but this invitation into curiosity, I mean, Jesus never gives a straight answer to a question. Never. It's, um, he tells stories that confuse everybody um, a lot of the time. And his disciples don't, they, they are confused. Another one's following him around. And so sort of in private, they're like, Jesus, uh, why do you always teach? And <laughs> These confusing stories. Basically, wouldn't it be much easier if you just told everyone what to um, like the answers? Um, but Jesus doesn't. He continually refuses to do that because I think it does it sucks. The, um, yeah. the, then there's no quest, and the transformation that I guess we're trying to talk about, even in, in in this time together, is found in the wrestle. It's found in the hunt. It's found in the search, in the in the the curiosity uh, that draws you in. Um, the transformation is not found in just being given the answer to your question, you know. So, ah, oh, so what should I do? You should do this. Oh, great. Okay, thank you. Um, well, there's there's no there's no quest to go on there, which means there's no transformation really to be had. Uh, and so, I wonder too. I wonder if, when I read the Gospels, you have the Synoptic Gospels and Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are a little bit more structured around the. The, the factual recollection maybe, or trying to recall the stories and the life flow of Jesus. And then you hit the book of John, who's a classic mystic. And when you hit that book, there are so many things in that book where you just, your head just goes, 
Uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And you go, what? What the heck? And then you move through it and you hit uh, the chapter two, um, I think it's chapter two, where uh, the water into wine. It's like it's not in any of the others. Then you hit chapter three, um, you know, for God so loved the world and the story of Nicodemus. All right, and you go, you must be born again. It's like, what? None of that's in any of the other Gospels. Then you hit chapter four, Samaritan woman, not in any of the others. The whole book of John begins to unwrap this very mystical approach of Jesus impacting people's lives and reminding them that God has always been with them. He's always been in them. He's always been speaking to them. He's always being stuff. And, and John unpacks this beautiful mysticism. You are, he is the vine and you are the branches. John 15, it's just phenomenal. So when you read the book of John, don't try to read it the same as the synoptics. Read it as a mystical invitation into the being absorbed by the Spirit of Christ, all right? Where you're going, oh my gosh, what does it mean to be born again? Do I need to jump back into a womb? <laughs> you know, it really doesn't mean that, but that's what you would think if someone says you need to be born again, or would you? What would you think? You know, you know so the, the mystics, mysticism of that passage is saying, what does it mean to be born again? Well, that means, you know, you know. Anyway, so. That's Nicodemus having a real classic literal moment, eh? Jesus says, well, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Now, we all know that now in an American accent, Laura could tell, to be born again Christian. Uh, you know, born again becomes this kind of phrase, are you, are you born again? Um, it used to be when I was growing up, it was like, are you a Christian? Not really. Or are you a born again Christian? Yeah. Then you're a real one. Um, but we're so used to that phrase. But Nicodemus, the first time he hears it, he's like, am I sp supposed to get back into my mother's womb? <laughs> Again, you can imagine Jesus just being like, oh, uh, nope, nope, you missed that one. Uh, but then he, he stays still in, in mystery language. You must be born of the Spirit and of water. You know, he uses all of this kind of... And later on in, in, in John 15, he, he, his, this, this whole prayer passage where in the end he says, my prayer is that they might be one as you and I are one. You know, this whole, um, he enters into this whole mystical kind of union notion uh, of that in some way the oneness between uh, Jesus and God might also be a oneness that we experience with one another as we are all drawn into that kind of, um, that mutual indwelling of us with one another and with God. Um, yeah, it is, it's a, it's a profoundly different gospel from the other three, but it is, it is beautifully mystical and very unusual and curious. Um, what we might do is we might have a little break because we're just, man, we've just been throwing out some bombs. Um, have a little break. If you've got some questions that are boiling away or that you'd like to ask, then what we'll do is we will have a break. I've got one or two more questions for Greg. We'll see if you guys have got some questions and then see where we find ourselves from there. Is that all right? Okay, so take a breather. Um, we'll be back shortly. All right. Um, the really frustrating thing about talking about the Bible like this is that you go away from this going, so how do I read the Bible? Uh, <laughs> which is kind of the point in, in the way. It's... it's um, It is, it is this kind of thing, I think, that in some ways you can't just go off in isolation and, and, and just do by yourself. 
um, but that it's this communal experience. Um, so in many respects, in the way that we're talking about what even the point of reading the Bible is, if you think about that, because I think, I think that itself is kind of confused for a lot of people. Um, some people are just tired of it. It's like, I don't really know the point of reading it anymore, or I never knew the point of reading it to begin with. <laughs> Seems like a strange, weird, outdated, boring book. Um, it might not be you, but some people feel like that. Um, some people, it's, uh, as we discussed you know, a few weeks ago, it's been traumatizing in its own way for some people because of the way it's been used. And so it's this complicated relationship that we have with it. But I guess what we're sort of discussing and throwing around here is that in some way, part of what the point is, is this, is this idea of meaning. It's of invitation. It's that these questions that we wrestle with now are questions that human beings have been wrestling with for a long time. These questions that we wrestle with about what is the point of life, does it matter? Do I have meaning? Is any, does, does this have meaning? Are we connected to each other or are we just kind of accidents stumbling our way through a meaningless existence? <laughs> I mean, these are the big like existential questions of the human experience, right? You don't necessarily wake up every morning thinking about that. Um, <laughs> But at some level, even, even in the 21st century in a very secular society, you can see those questions are still very present for people. Those are still the questions we're wrestling with as human beings, even if we're coming up with all sorts of ways to sort of cover over those questions with just as much kind of fast-paced activity and stress as we, as we can, just to kind of bury those existential questions because we don't know what to do with them. These questions are questions that humans have always been asking. It's a part of the fundamental human experience. And as we enter into reading the scripture, in some way what we're doing is joining in with this long tradition of our ancestors, if you like, even if, even if not biologically, um, then our kind of faith ancestors, we are joining in with their journey of wrestling with these questions, of their own experiences of God and trying to make sense of them as we do ours. Yeah? Has anyone had an experience? I'm not going to ask you to describe it. I'm just, it's just more like, has anyone ever had an experience of something where they're like, I feel like I experienced something beyond myself? Perhaps we'd, we might talk about it as some kind of God or spirituality connection of something like that. Has anyone had that kind of experience? Yeah. And. Um, that's kind of what we're, we're wrestling with. That's what we're trying to figure out. One of the uh, 11th century theologians, Anselm, uh, talked about the process of faith-seeking understanding, that in some way all of our thinking about God, all of our wrestling with Scripture, all of our theology, whatever we want to call it, is all trying to understand this kind of fundamental core experience that we have even if that experience differs from person to person. All right. Um, before I wander too far from the path, um, are there any, just given what we've been talking about, are there any questions that come to mind for you um, that you'd want to ask? Katrina. It's more like a thought that just occurred to me. Um, 
the use of metaphor in the Bible. And so the Bible really was written for an agrarian. People were very much lived off the land and they lived in small communities, you know. Um, and maybe my way of exploring my, a, a, a new relationship with the Bible could be about connecting with the land again. Because, you know, that whole abiding in me, like you and me with the wine and, and the trees and this clay. And I'm so far removed from that. So I'm, I think I miss out on a lot of richness because I've, I live a very clean Western life in an office in front of a screen. And so I'm quite excited about this idea that the Bible is like an invitation similar to the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, even though I've never read it, you know, where you can go through into this, in an, into something really new that is for me to discover, not for society to tell me how I should experience life. Cool. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of the metaphors in the text we find hard to resonate with because we're so detached from the kind of earthiness that these metaphors arise out of. Um, so I think, yeah, that's cool. Fee. Um, how long is it that the common people have really had, you know, the Bible to like mess our way through? Because for a long time it was, you know, intellectual people or learned people or, and so, you know, now we can and I think then it, people take it and interpret in wrong ways and it's a bit scary really but yeah just a comment about that well yeah it's an interesting question it's really the 16th century with the development the, I mean this was part of the reformation because what really enabled the reformation to happen was the printing press got got developed and so uh, Luther translated the the Bible from Latin into, into common German and then got the printing press and printed it and suddenly the common person was sitting there with a the Bible in their hand. Whereas up until that point, it was all interpreted for them by the priest. Now there's kind of, I think there's a tension here. When it was only in the hands of priests and academics, it could be used to manipulate and oppress the people. So one of the liberating things when it went into the hands of the common people was that that they could see in the text for themselves that it doesn't actually say that and you're using it to control us and that's not what this is meant to be for. The problem with it is that it, put, <laughs> it put, put, puts, us, puts the the Bible in all of our hands and a lot of us don't know what to do with it. And so then we uh, find all sorts of curious ways to make it mean something that maybe it doesn't. And so perhaps the the place for us is to find the conversation in the middle between those two. I think if it's just like, because I'm an academic, right? So I'm a, a theologian who teaches and, and I get to go to academic conferences and hear, you know, learned PhD scholars present their findings and journal articles and research and stuff like that. But the problem, if it only stays there, if that's where all the authority lies, is that that becomes very detached from the actual real lives of, of people. And so there has to be some kind of conversation between all of this, I think, this meeting point. Um, 
which is why perhaps it finds its way into the hands of common people, but it remains a communal conversation rather than just this very individualized, personalized kind of um, journey. Any other? James, yes. So this thought about um, Duke and Jesus when he's telling these parables to these guys and they're like, not answer, he's out not answering them straight. Duke and he kind of has like a funny look. <laughs> kind of gives them at the end of it and they go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also just, um, I, I, I'm finding it kind of hard, like um, it, is, it is a relatively new thing to be, um, I, and I really like it, the idea that it kind of says that the whole Old Testament is a metaphor and it be, um, that we should translate it each personally and I really like that idea. Um, but then I find myself looking back on the Old Testament and going, what about the Ten Commandments? Like, what about all the things that, he, that God said? And it said, God said that. And I, I kind of like, oh, crap. How do I resolve that? <laughs> How do I, no, Mike, do I now need to read through the whole Old Testament and just kind of go, okay, reinterpret all that to a specific thing for my life and and fully immerse myself in this whole story. And yeah, it's kind of blowing my mind, man. <laughs> the, um, uh, one of the things that um, I, I love this because I think the Bible is not a book you just read, it's a book you wrestle with. You, you've got to wrestle with it and you've got to argue with it. And one of the things that Michael said, when, when the Reformation hit and you have this kind of release of the text to the common people, what happened if, for some of my reading is there, there became a separation from the, the scholars or the, the, and the common people. And rather than sitting and wrestling and arguing and talking in forums like this around the text, they, we, we, we became sermonizers. So people learnt what they thought was the Bible through sermons. And I don't think that's bad, but I, I love these settings here where you've got to sit and argue and squabble and because that's what the rabbis did. They sat around and they didn't just, you know, they, they ferociously questioned each other and, and Westerners are a bit nervous about that. Well, what, what do you mean by that? What, 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 you know, they constantly, even the disciples did that of Jesus. And I think going back and reading the Old Testament for me is, I struggle. I have to leave some parts. I read it and I just go, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not into you right now. I need to figure out where I'm in because the, the Bible's a library of books and you'll always find something that, that interests you in the moment and you have to give yourself permission to say, well, I don't actually like that last story in the book of Judges right now where the guy says, here, take her, rape her all night long and then cuts her up and sends her throughout. I, I'm, I'm just not into that part of the Bible anymore. You know, I find it, you know, horrible. And so you've got to leave it and, and find a space where you can wrestle and be at peace inside of your soul. I will say this. I think what Michael brings for me is this idea that scholarly theological work can be an important part of the formation of our lives and that we need these kind of voices talking to us, helping us to grow and learn. Um, and, and, and that's what the prophets were, by the way. The prophets were the scholars of the Bible. Sometimes we don't treat them like that. We just think, oh, they're just those guys who do weird stuff. They're actually biblical scholars. And what, they, what their scholarly work was, was, was bringing that allegorical symbolic stuff to the people and saying, hey, look.
Yeah, we're we're generally pretty uncomfortable with with wrestling with things, and that being a part of the actual process. You know, I think um, maybe also is just as a part of it's, it's a Western thing, and it's also a, a Protestant thing, which is we our version of wrestling is you see it that way, I see it this way. I guess we'll better go start another church. Uh, <laughs> um, that's our that's our like. Um, <laughs> That's the conclusion we draw, you know. Whereas this very the, the the more ancient way of of doing this is to is to find joy in the wrestling with 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 yeah. the story. I mean, it, even when we when we think about stuff that God says in the Old Testament, it's a kind of a shock to our modern mind that the Old Testament authors themselves are disagreeing with each other. That they are having the conversation as well. I think we mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, the Torah gives all of these commands when they come out of Egypt. You know, here are all the ways you should do animal sacrifices. And then Jeremiah says, "Thus says the Lord your God: I never told you to do sacrifices when you came out of Egypt." <laughs> um, and you're like, "Well, I'm pretty sure you did. It's back there earlier in the book." Um, but they're having this conversation even within the text itself, uh, and and I, that's a liberating kind of idea for me because you're like actually it's in the com- we're all we're figuring this out alongside one another together we all bring our experiences to the table uh, we don't just have this kind of individual kind of kooky reading of the text where I just go off into my own dark room and I come up with my own interpretations and then I float amongst the more the common people with my enlightened thoughts and smugly look at your wall uh, it's this communal experience I think even when we talk about the language of mysticism it's not just this solely individual mystical experience. It's also this communal experience where our experiences collide with one another, um, which is what happens when we all sit down in a room like this, which I think is beautiful. Any other? Can I ask you, you a question? You can ask me. Um, Dr. Frost. Hello. So do you think in the early book of Genesis where the serpent who represents that adversarial part of us that needs to question, did God really say that? Is that the Bible's way of perhaps challenging us to ask that question on a continual basis with one another around what we believe God says to us when we read the text or even interpret what we feel God is saying to us individually? Um, so what I'm saying is when it talks about the, that serpent that says, mm-hmm. did God really say that? Mm-hmm. Is that story in the text a, a, about the literal uh, moment or is it asking a bigger question around how we need to be asking ourselves, did God really say that? Not to try and disprove that God did, but to really know when God is speaking to us in a communal sense. Do you know what? I've never thought about it like that. Okay. <laughs> but it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And now I will go away and think about it. Does it mean the snake was doing bother? Ah, that's a, it's, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think if we, if we, clearly when we read the story, right, it's, there are these, like we talked last time, there are these mythological Elements to it. You've got the, the, the talking serpent kind of um, having this back and forth over a magical apple. You know, um, it's 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 clearly not trying to tell us this kind of literal story, from my opinion.
you're of course welcome to read it literally. Um, and so what it does is invite us in and say, well, okay, what is the, as you say, the thing behind the thing? What is the meaning then captured within this story? And what we start to do when we do that is we start to come at the story from a number of different angles and we start to push it and prod it and poke it and say, what is the story actually doing? How is it, uh, how is it telling us about the human experience uh, and about the way people wrestle with it? And so these kind of questions that you ask me, which I do not have an answer for, uh, are the kind of stories that can come up when we approach the text in this kind of way, which is a great way of fluffing a question I don't have an answer to. Anyone else? Yes, Laura. Well, I think one of the questions Andrew and I were just talking about today was um, we're, we've asked the youth even today, like, who reads their, who's, who's read the Bible? Who even has an actual Bible? And they're like, knit. <laughs> and like most of these kids are from Christian homes, like what I would dub Christian homes. And so our wrestling is, okay, what does it look like for us? as the generation above them now to tell the story in such a way that they will want to read it and want to understand it because in, in some ways it does seem so far-fetched and so irrelevant. So this is where we come back. We're wondering around, is it about the power of our experience and story with Jesus? Greg came in last week and shared all his crazy stories like, like, three of them, there's like a million, I'm sure. But, and they were like big eyed and like, oh. and I was like, this is it. Like, we've got to capture their imaginations. But I, I don't know how we will take it to a point. I'm, we're just not sure. Like, how do we get them to read it? Like, will they? Or they can just watch it like online. I don't know. What's going to happen? YouTube. A whole, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I would say to that is the reason I tell my stories is to try and help them connect back to that, the point of reference because the sacred scriptures are still my point of reference. So I tell my experience and then I try to relate it back to some kind of join the dots experience because I still believe in the sacredness of our, our text and our Jesus narrative. Um, not so much to buy them Bibles or to get them to read it, but I think this is a new generation. I, I just don't think we're going to hand out Bibles and they're going to go away and read them. I think they're going to learn a different way but I think it behoves of us as teachers to connect the dots, to join it back to, you know, how we understand it's connected to the narrative that we 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 consider precious. You know, um, so when I talk about my deliverance, I always refer it back to a passage where Jesus did something crazy with a human being on the way, or you know. So I, I always trying to join the dots so that people don't see I'm just making stuff up. Um, just, did you want to say something to that? Yeah, okay. Cool, Linda. I'm having the same um, question around grandchildren. <clears throat> and so um, Charlotte was like, Mum, what Bible should I get for Freya? She's three. And I'm like, ooh, <laughs> help. Um, and I said, I think I might write one. <laughs> um, I, I think now when I'm 
faced with because I know what I did with my children when we were we read classic Bible stories and we weren't using the language of metaphor, you know. And I I'm sadly I was probably presenting although they say that we weren't, but I think now I was probably presenting quite a literal approach. So, um, and I've thought about this a lot with my own reading of the text. Um, I want to find, when I'm reading the Bible, if it doesn't feel like or sound like God, who is love, I go, hmm, it's got to be something else. It might sound really simplistic. So when I think about how I will communicate with Freya, um, I want to. I want her to know these stories, but I want her to find. I want her as a three-year-old to understand the spirit of that text. Where is God in the story? And if if the story isn't presenting a God who is loving and kind and forgiving and merciful, then I'm like, well, maybe something else is happening, and maybe it's a personal interpretation that the person who's written that story or the people that have written that story wanted God to be like that, but God wasn't like that. So. Um, this is my own personal challenge, even with the reading of the text. I, I feel like there's been a season where I've pulled away and I realise now that I have, it's, it's a relational book. I have a relationship with it and sometimes I'm not happy with it, so I pull away. <laughs> Other times I want to pick it up and engage again, but I think it's a really good question. Um, I think it's going, I love the fact that we can sit with, even that you could sit with young people and maybe present a, a, a story that's, biblical and then ask them what they think about it how does it make them feel where is God in the story you know but I, I was in Houston airport and I thought I was looking for a children's bible and I opened I found one and I opened the first page in the Genesis story Adam and Eve and the snake and the way the the story was presented was like made me feel quite ill that God was really mean and this is going to happen to you and I just shut it and walked out of the shop I'm like, that's not the one I'm looking for you know, so it's really important that we think about the next generation and how we consider or the way we communicate and tell story. You know. Yeah, I think we have a real opportunity, but it's a real challenge, right? Which is to to find ways to talk about God to the next generation coming through that are actually going to help them make some sense of God in the world and, and Scripture. I, I wonder sometimes whether we still, especially people of my generation or older, um, still have in mind that the ideal goal is to have young people sitting at home reading their Bible every morning. Um, and that might be what some people do, but I would suggest it's probably going to be pretty rare. I'd say it's pretty rare for most people in this room, let alone the young generation coming through. Um, and in fact, that itself is, is an expectation that has been created around what kind of relationship we should have with the Bible. Uh, and so what would it look like to be able to just, instead of having that as the fundamental kind of goal we're trying to get people to, instead, to be, well, let's just start with a story, like Nana says, and talk about what's going on in that story and see if we can find some observations and some experiences and see where that takes us and just and, and, and let things unfold a little bit um, from there. Yes, Natalie. It's just kind of connected to what you were saying. I had such an interesting conversation with my mum recently. Um, and at the same time, James was having a chat to my dad about, um, he just latched on to talking about heaven and hell and it was this real heavy chat and I just like tapped out and then started talking to mum. And she was 
reflecting on parenting us and how she has taught us about faith. And we were talking about the fact that my brothers um, don't really have a faith and have chosen to just not engage at all. Um, And as she looks back on how she raised us through church, she was saying she wishes um, that rather than focusing on all of this um, kind of what you've been talking about, like literal, I don't know, she wishes she'd just focus on love and, and in all the stories, like that was just her baseline and she's now like, 67 and she's looking back on all her parenting of faith and she's like I just wish that I'd done it a different way um it was quite a big comment and I've been thinking about it heaps um and especially thinking about it with having a kid and I'm like just at a real baseline it's like love and then that comes into how you teach youth as well um but on a on a practical note like when you talk about because I've been taught to read it real literally as well. And then in recent years, wanting to read it more around mystery and being a creative and think more conceptually and that kind of thing. But I somehow just can't quite work out how to get myself from the literal to the mysterious. Like, how how do you do that? Because when I was a teenager, it was like I had little devotionals and it would be like, here's a verse, here's a breakdown. And that was like handed to me on a plate. And as an adult, how do I get my brain to like rejig and and like we've done it in a conversational sense and we've been doing that at home with a couple of other couples, which has been cool, just talking it out like we're doing here. But I'm like, is there any like app? <laughs> <laughs> we want an app that's going to dial up the, uh, the, the 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 mystery the mystery button. I just think that you can't underestimate the power of experience, and this is what Michael was referring to, um, and also how we talked about how you raised about. Um, this engagement with creation and nature because this is very experiential. And so you said, how can I disengage my brain or how can I figure it out? And I think that what we're talking about tonight is mystery which can't be figured out. I remember one one day at home I was standing on the back <clears throat> back deck of our house and, um, and two tuis came flying from different directions at each other. But they did this thing together in front of me right here. And I was so, I was stunned and overwhelmed as these two birds just did this. It was like a split second of a joining of two birds, two tui, and making so much noise with their wings. And then they were gone. And I was like, I just think I, I felt like I just encountered something. I felt something really strange. And I wow, that just ruined me for literal understanding. That's an experience, and I think that's how we move into a, an understanding, which isn't an understanding, it's an understanding. We go from here to our gut, and we go, oh my goodness, what just happened? That was so weird. That helps. That helped me. Yeah, and I'm looking for that now. Once you taste something that's a little bit mysterious, it's like, it's like the best chocolate that you eat. You just got to go find it again, you know, and so that's helped me to break out of my literal world, maybe? Yeah. 
I'll just say something really quickly. The thing that helped me, um, because I was drenched in this for 30 years, I was taught to be a that kind of way. I realised that just w when I had a personal crisis, a personal psychological crisis, um, I realised how helpless I was to fix my crisis on my own. I needed assistance. I needed a professional. Um, and I think a crisis of faith is absolutely crucial to your evolution. I think I go from crisis to crisis. And I think the good thing about a crisis is like that heaven and hell crisis, you, you need help. So I employed the help of some mystics to help me. So I've got some people that I read and one person's helped me is Richard Rohr. Another has helped me is Peter Enns. He has a great podcast. He's a great book. Um, the Bible tells me so. And he's got a new book that's come out. He's got a great podcast. So um, uh, if you don't have an intuitive, ecstatic moment with creation or something like that, and you're more of an examination person rather than an ecstasy person, then you've got to do some legwork around finding people who are playing on the fringes of their their faith and listen to their podcasts and read some of their material. And that's just a really pragmatic way for me because I, I, while I have a lot of ecstatic experiences, I, I just needed some really practical head buds in my ears moments at the gym where I listened to podcasts and Peter Enns and Richard Raw really, really helped me. I think that's good because in many respects, the more literal way of reading has itself been formed by listening to people use the Bible that way over and over and over again. And so you've been, we've been formed in that way of engaging in the text. So to reform, uh, we have to, I think it's, it's multiple aspects. It's, it's asking those questions about our own experience and it's then also allowing new voices to, to reform us and to help us um, and open our eyes to ask some different questions of the text. And so even, even coming to the biblical text and simply asking yourself the question, why are they telling this story? Like I find that just for myself as a fundamental starting point when I come to the text is a transformative question for me rather than, oh, here's the story, uh, three principles or, you know, like just, just diving straight into this kind of, just asking myself and to, to stop and think about when this first story was first told and go, why were they telling this story? And that itself just translates me into a slightly different space when I engage in the text. Um, what's going on for them? How do they see God? What kind of experiences that they have have they had? Um, and then that starts a conversation for me. Um, and 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 to not be afraid of it, not be afraid, um, especially if you do it if you are continually bringing that into a communal experience. Uh, not being afraid that you're suddenly going to um, upset God, get it wrong. Um, Jesus, Jesus was happy to play with the text. I love when he quotes in his first sermon, he quotes from Isaiah. We're about to finish, but he quotes from Isaiah, this, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he finishes and he puts it down. And everyone's stunned probably because they know he left off the last line, which is and proclaim the, the year of the, uh, the day of vengeance of our God, which is in the original Isaiah text. And he's like, nope, I'm dropping that bit, um, which is brilliant, right? He's, um, he's decided, nope, we're, we're, going, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to reinterpret this for you. Uh, he did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, 
you know, he, he's not afraid to, to play with the text. The same way that he said, well, you've heard it said this, but I'm going to tell you, how about you think about it like this? Uh, and we're invited into that tradition. Uh, Paul himself at one point has the curious reading of saying, you know, the, the, in the wilderness, Moses and the rock, which he hits with the old, uh, which he wasn't supposed to do. The water comes out and everybody drinks the water coming out of the rock. Good literal story. Well, what Paul says is that the, uh, the rock follows them around in the desert. So Paul expands the tradition and he says, actually, everywhere they go, the rock followed them, which is this like beautiful like elaboration on the story, right? Which is not in the original text. He says, the rock follows them around. Uh, and then he goes, and the rock is Jesus. Well, the rock is Christ, he says. So he's, he is also then, he's, he's, he's mystically playing with, with the imagery in the text, right? And so our invitation is to participate in that tradition. But it does take some, some reforming because there's a lot of energy that has gone into forming you in a particular kind of way um, from, those, from, from the tradition we're kind of a part of. So um, has this been helpful? It's a good kind of conversation. Um, yes, Andrew, okay, last question. That's a comment. It's from my 13-year-old son who decided to read Genesis um, and as he was reading it and is telling me all these stories, we, he basically concluded that Genesis is just a whole lot of gossip. <laughs> it was like, and he said, you know, it was a really interesting read. <laughs> but yeah, from his perspective, because he hasn't really been in the literal, you know, didn't grow up like I did. He actually, yeah, he was reading Genesis and seeing all these stories that people must have told about their, you know, the ancestors and the, the stories that made it were the, were the ones that were really, um, you know, about incest and, and, you know, and all these kind of, yeah, it was, it was like, it's just, it's, um, yeah, it's full of gossip. He was quite excited about it, but. <laughs> I do, I do, um, I mean, these are stories that were told, like the oral, as we, we've talked about already, the oral traditions, you know. Uh, I like, you know, the, the literal thing which says that Moses clearly wrote the first five books of the Bible when writing wasn't invented until the 6th or 7th century BC, um, you know, uh, once, once we are able to open ourselves up to the fact that there's maybe something different going on here, then all sorts of conversations emerge. It doesn't mean that every then idea that comes to us now is, is correct and that we should run with, we, but the conversation opens up for us and we're able to enter into it and not be scared. And, then we're, and, and as we'll talk in a little bit of time, uh, Jesus becomes, in the Christian tradition, a kind of grounding point which brings us back to love and the way that reshapes our reading of things. So, all right, that's enough for tonight. There's more we'll say, but next time we're going to talk about violence, more specifically. That sounds like a fun time. Um, and what we do with, with some of those texts, are there ways we can read them? Should we just avoid them all? Just be like, I don't like the violent ones. Uh, or is there something else going on here that we might be able to engage with? So, that'll be next time. Formation. Thanks for coming out. We have... Um, we have dinner. What do we have? Chinese noodle soup uh, for a koha. Uh, please, please uh, give a little koha. And if you, if this is a time when you can do your general edge giving, then you are more than welcome to do that also. Uh, open the floodgates of heaven, uh, something like that. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? And um, uh, that'd be good because then we can still like turn the lights on when we come in. Shall I pray? Shall, should I say a prayer? This is the food for us. All right.
Okay. Does doesn't it? All right. Let's uh, let's let's say a prayer. Why don't you stand then? Because that's the official edge tradition. We're not allowed to pray without standing up at the end. God, um, thank you for mystery. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you that life means something. Thank you that we are connected to you and to each other in ways that sometimes we do not see. Thank you for the sacred stories that tell us the history of people's experience of trying to figure out who you are and what you're like. May we be people who join in that conversation. That we might be changed in some kind of way. That we might be reformed. to be people who know what it is to love, to be generous, compassionate, kind and self-giving. As we do the very earthy practice of eating together, may we find you present in our food, in our conversation, in our breath, 